Welcome everyone. We're at the Freiburg New Church Assembly. It's August the 10th. My name is Rosalind Taylor and our guest is George, otherwise known as Reverend Dr. George Doll, but George for this evening. <laughs> and uh, the subject today is George's uh, book, The Universe and I, recently published. So George, here at the assembly this week, we've had a book club that have been having a lot of fun reading your book in one week. Mm -hmm. And um, I've got to say, even though it's a short book, it's very deep. <laughs> so reading it in one week with a group of people is about the only way I would have been able to get through it. <laughs> uh, but um, so our group, there were about seven or eight of us in total, and um, we came up with some questions. For you okay if you would be willing to entertain our questions take your best shot mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll give it a shot. all right and thank you so much for coming out you know so you can do this for us and for all your readers out there and also for all the readers out there um, you can get this book on Amazon and you can also get it by going to the Swedenborg Foundation site because after you hear our wonderful discussion and conversation, I'm sure you'll want to read it yourself. Okay, so thank you for coming, and here we go. First question. Uh, there's, there's two themes that come up a lot in the book. One is a dialogue about free will and determinism. Mm -hmm. And the other one is, this is a quote, creative motion towards differentiation and, and integration and sometimes that's reworded as a creative motion towards autonomy and inclusion. How do those two themes relate or intersect with each other? And then sort of secondary to that, do you have a Swedenborgian perspective on those themes? And <laughs> A great many ways this really comes right to the a fundamental dualism that runs through Swedenborgian theology, heart and mind, love and wisdom, intellect and emotion and so on, with intellect doing the discriminating and love constantly pulling things together. And the sort of wake-up call that in a way prompted this was the reading and becoming aware that according to physics this is something that has been going on since the Big Bang. That the formation of particles, the individuation and their aggregation and that this then the aggregation the aggregations aggregate and so on so you build what seems to be incredible complexity without just dissolving into total chaos you a very disciplined a very cohesive unity and physics for example assumes that the laws of physics that we experience here apply everywhere else in, throughout the universe. 
and so they they detect a redshift, you know, of five billion light years ago, and assume it means the same thing as the light shifts today, and can be interpreted, yield information according to those to that principle. And at the beginning of one of my favorite of Swedenborg's books, New Jerusalem, and its heavenly doctrines, teachings, is that the most important thing is what we mean by the word good and what we mean by the word true. Nothing else is more important for us to know than that which is a, a big statement when you consider that there are 35 volumes to get through, and he's saying this is the most important thing throughout the whole thing. And the good is the uniting, and the true is the distinguishing. And if it weren't for the good, the distinguishing would just be dividing and separating. If it weren't for the distinction, the uniting would just be goulash. It would just be a, a great big sloppy puddle, so to speak. And the dialogue between those two, two tendons things can be competitive and can be destructive. You can get into a unified community and get people arguing with each other and bring division. And you can get into a divided situation uh, and confuse it with a lot of emotional overload. But ideally, so ideally though, uh, as this reaches the, the human level, you have the basis of harmonious human relationships and you get very close to, to you get right onto the what Swedenborg describes identifies as the purpose of creation a heaven from the human race a, a total <laughs> uh, we'd have to say now meta-global uh, perfect community loving community and he's also saying that the same rules apply on all scales. The same rules that apply, there's a wonderful Lao Tse little sequence. That, uh, if there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace between countries. If there is to be peace between countries, there must be peace. Uh, peace between cities. If there is between, to be peace within cities, there, should, there must be peace within homes. If there is to be peace within homes, there must be peace in hearts. That's, that's slightly compressive. But this, and this, the same thing, our own ability to experience the, the marriage of, of the good and the true, of love and wisdom in ourselves. And I a little smile about marriage, because marriage isn't always a bed of roses either. <laughs> it has its ups and downs. 
and in a marriage is not just a wedding. And what can you tell us about the dialogue about free will and determinism? And yeah. is that related to that marriage of good and truth? Because I had a hard time trying to bring them together. And maybe you didn't really bring them together in the book, but I thought that's the direction we were going. Yeah, this, that comes in in, in, in in my own work of authorship came in most strongly in realizing that uh, this is a question that is currently really nibbling away at the fringes of this, of this dialogue between science and spirituality. And there is a growing realization that mechanistic, materialistic determinism isn't adequate for what really matters. And I remember from way back, it's much too uh, commonplace to be able to attach an author to. All reason ag argues against free will. That is, we want to understand why something happened. We look for the causes. What, what made this happen? But all experience argues for it. For free will, we experience ourselves as making choices that make a difference. It shows up very strongly in socio-political thinking of the social determinism, where uh, you can blame dysfunctional families for criminal behavior. This person was brought up in a terrible home. This caused. This was the sole cause of this antisocial behavior. And the other side we said, just do it for heaven's sake. Shut up and do it right. You can do it. And the experience and holding people utterly responsible for their behavior, regardless of what they've been through, regardless of the hardships they they have faced, regardless of how they've been conditioned and what they've been taught. And there is a, an actually potentially creative but, can potent, but often destructive dialogue between social determinism and uh, total, total individual accountability. And we need both. And there is a tension. And to my mind, <coughs> It could be regarded as an opportunity that is looking at a societal problem at, at behavior. We can intervene in the social and we can intervene in the individual. We have multiple ways of approaching this and we should not restrict ourselves ideologically, real, ruled one of these out. We should say, okay, this. Let's see whether we can get a coordinated approach that will engage the individual and the community both. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, we definitely felt in our uh, book club that this is a very valuable book. It's definitely valuable to me as a Swedenborgian to hear your perspective on sort of science and religion. But we wondered if you know of any plan to get the book out 
into the so it's known in the scientific world um, because of its value in critiquing some of the theories in the scientific world. I don't know. Um, <coughs> I was very pleased with uh, Professor Greenstein's uh, saying he saw it as moving us, but I think he means the scientific community really toward a more nuanced conception of reality. I, I profoundly hope that the word gets out, and I think it's largely up to the foundation's uh, sales PR people to try to get the book reviewed and to, to get it publicized. I, I hope it could, could really pick up some momentum along the way, but uh, a lot of the things that happen in terms of this and like book tours and stuff like that does not appeal to me mm. at, at all, that kind, that, that kind of PR thing. I, I would like it to be recog simply recognized as a worthwhile participant in a, a, an ongoing conversation I've urged at the foundation from time to time that they get off this approach of publishing things that tell, answer the questions we think they ought to be asking. Yeah. Instead, start listening to the questions that they are asking and address those. And that's, that's what I've been trying to do in here. And the, one of the results is that it uses, the book uses a good deal of the vocabulary of the, of the books you'll find in the bibliography, which are books written for the general public, not, not written strictly for physicists, thank heaven, but uh, from very knowledgeable people in the, in the sciences. And Stephen Hawking being, of course, a leading figure in that, but a, num a number of others. Yeah. So perhaps uh, book reviews or something in some of the journals or whatever that people read that are interested in yeah. physics, that lay people read that are interested in physics, yeah. modern science or... And to, to look, I hope the foundation will be looking over the literate, the periodicals, and identifying ones that, that uh, publish articles by some of the people I'm quoting in here, so to speak. But I'd also like, very much like to see uh, attention from the theological community. Oh, it, the, beyond the Swedenborgian theological the, Yeah, yeah mm. beyond, beyond the Swedenborgian. Well, perhaps with the um, Center for Swedenborgian Studies being situated within the GTU, that might be yeah, a I, hopeful place that, to start. That, that, that could be a hopeful, hopeful yeah. thing, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I certainly would love to see the same thing because, well, I think it's totally unique. Obviously, nobody, no other Swedenborgian has put together yeah. in such depth um, the, the science of today, especially in quantum mechanics with Swedenborgian thought, and um, and so it's valuable from that perspective. But, you know, like as I mentioned earlier, I think for readers of scientific materials to have 
uh, considered theological approach as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think you know, at this fringe that I'm trying particularly to address, there is a general, a, a, a live recognition that uh, science itself, as, it, as by its own rules almost, is morally neutral. And is not an adequate adequate guidance. That's the point of the opening epilogue, the quote from uh, Edgar Mitchell, that the scientific approach is, does not have the answers to the questions that really plague us, that, that are causing us to destroy our planet, and so on. And uh, I forgot at the moment, the Kaufman, I think, uh, that it, reductionism, trying to trace everything back to its its parts, uh, winds up as as morally sterile. And the I, I think there is a an unrecognized but very persuasive reason why Swedenborg wrote the first overview of his theology, of the theology and entitled it The New Jerusalem and Its Heavenly Teachings and led off with a, with a chapter on the New Jerusalem. That is, he's saying, heavenly community is what it's all about. And if you don't, are not devoted to the goal of heavenly community, the theology will be worthless. But if you don't have the perspective provided by the theology, you won't know how to get from where you are to heavenly community. They're very interactive. And we're at a point uh, where globalism is a fact of life. It isn't something that is in the future. It is here, and it ain't gonna go away. And it begins to become clear that we have it. We need to learn to live together. It was in, I think, 1970 or so that a British astronomer, Steve Holt, was it? I said, when we first see a picture of Earth from outer space, we will have a message that we've never had before. And we will, these are my words, we will realize that we are all alone together. Mm -hmm. Little tiny planet, boy, are we ever alone. And are we ever together? And we have to learn how to live together, for heaven's sakes. Literally, for heaven's sakes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, so our next question um, kind of 
focuses on the move uh, that you uh, talked about in the book, moving from Homo sapiens sapiens to Homo sapiens sentient. Yeah. Sentience. Yeah. Sort of the transformation or the further evolution of human beings to a sentient uh, Homo sapiens, not just a knowing. Is sapiens wise or knowing? Homo yeah, sapiens? sapiens is wise and okay. sentience is, in a sense, feeling, sensitive, sensitivity. Sensitively feeling. And I intended on, uh, to a simple waking up to the fact that we are spiritual beings in physical bodies and that our happiness and harmony and in fact survival depends on our attitudes toward each other and how how we value each other how we treat each other how we feel about each other and how we understand each other And those, and those would be the characteristics that you postulate for Homo yeah. sapiens sentience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I've had one memorable experience of empathy. I, I think there's a lot of it running around, by the, by the way, a lot more than we recognize. I mean, you know, crowd moves, that, that's empathy in, in action. We, we are affected by the emotional climate that we're enveloped in and it can become we can be very powerfully moved by it but i was in a meeting it was a faculty meeting with a, a consultant of some sort uh, working on a particular interpersonal problem that had surfaced I, between in the student body i forget what it was and i said i was just sitting about like this and listening. And I, from a, it was in a circle, living room type circle, I felt a wave of rage. And I knew exactly who it was coming from. I knew it wasn't mine, but boy, did I ever feel it. And I looked over and this person was sitting very still and not showing a thing. I later found out that something that was said had really t touched a nerve in, in him and brought back, some, brought out a sense of rage. And if we felt other people's feelings anywhere near as vividly as we feel our own, we would behave <laughs> very differently. And we are capable of it. We're capable of paying attention to such things. And this can be developed. There was a man I read about, this is also as a sort of a formative thing, uh, Anakul Chandra, uh, who was apparently born extraordinarily empathetic to the point that he might come home from school naked because somebody else had been cold or hungry because somebody else had been hungry. And you know, the, the, uh, the hunger of the other just overwhelmed his own, own sense of how, how his, of his private feelings. And the emotion, what's going on under the surface in this room 
if we could tune into it, we'd be blown away. <laughs> It'd like be turning on, you know, turning on the amplifiers and every single one and blasting. It's, it has to be toned down, but as I say, there is evidence we are capable of empathy and we are capable of paying attention to our empathy. And I think this is a necessity for the growth of human community. It is absolutely characteristic of the spiritual world when we can't hide inside bodies anymore. And when what we are feeling is evident and we gravitate naturally, maybe run hell-bound for leather towards the communities that are in tune with us, that, that, that we can integrate with, can find ourselves mutually, underst mutually understanding. Well, in the book, um, you mentioned the termite phenomenon. Yeah. Which I loved. So that, for the sake of you know all of you who haven't read the book, is um, correct me if I'm wrong in describing this, but you can observe termites if they're in out in the sandy surroundings or whatever, and if there's just a few of them, they kind of wander aimlessly and don't get anything done, kind of like me in the morning before the coffee. But then it gets to some critical number, and instantly they have a sort of consciousness together. And they come together and they build those amazing structures that are very complex, but like an individual or one or two or three can't do it. So there's something that happens that, that brings them together. Another thing that we noticed was that um, Swedenborg's writings influenced or transformed 19th century art, which I think Devin Zuber kind of illustrated here a little bit last year. And um, in the 20th century, spirituality was also transformed by Swedenborg's writings uh, to sort of new age thinking. And so obviously in termites can transform from undirected to very directed. So are any of those models, do you think, relevant for how we might move from Homo sapiens sapiens to Homo sapiens sentient? Sentients. Um, in reflecting on the termite problem, I it occurs to me that uh, this is more likely a feel than a perception. You know, I'm, I'm going to the place that feels right, not the place that looks right, so, so to speak. And the ability to pick up the mood of a group, I think you know, some process facilitators can be remarkably skilled. Cal Turley was, struck me as one was extraordinarily able to, to pick up the directions of satisfaction and dissatisfaction within, within a small group and to bring them out and, and have them articulated and dealt with. He wasn't as, I, I was much better at theologizing and verbalizing and we wound up with very different approaches of really wanting to work together because of the way in which we could complement each other. Yeah. Right, so that might be part of the transformation to, to sentience of yeah. complementing each other. Yeah. Using the, 
because in the book you're talking about the like the left brain does what looks right and the other one is what feels right is that yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the right brain saying, this is the place that feels right, and the mm -hmm. left brain saying, this is how to get there, yeah. <laughs> so, so to speak. Yeah. And the thing, I think it could be, could be that classified as pretty obvious that the more we care about another person, the more we really try to understand that person. And the better we understand that person, the more deeply we care. Whereas the more hostile we are, the more we distort, and the more, distort, more we distort, the more hostile we get. And this is the first gorgeous first little chapter of NJHT that the, the evil is a really mirror of the good and the false a really mirror of the true and the relationships mirror each other. Which again means that given a difficult situation emotional appeals and intellectual appeals are both both have their possibilities and their validity, and a, the appropriate combination of the two uh, uh, is, a r is a rare gift. <laughs> and I think, in, in, in a sense, that in a, in a very small scale, that something Cal and I occasionally were able to provide. And that, that, uh, be, that because we appreciated each other, and, and leaned on each other in that sense, and listened, listened to each other affirmatively when we were saying quite different things, perhaps. Yeah. Thank you. So now another theme that runs through the book is the theme about fire. And you first introduced that um, as it's, a, I believe, a Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Um, phrase because he's sort of is talking about the quantum mechanics of the universe but then says but how do we explain the fire that animates it all I'm way paraphrasing yeah. but then throughout the book you refer back to the fire and you always put it in quotation marks which makes me think that you're still quoting Hawking but I'm wondering yeah. what yeah. you're thinking like when you mentioned what what do you think the fire is yeah uh if anything, I would say it is the creative tension between differentiating and integrating. The, the, the creative tension between love and wisdom, divine love and wisdom, ultimately. Yeah. And that, that is, the, it is then a, an attribute of ultimate reality itself. It is, it is built into the system. And there have been one, one, one of the thinkers, indeed, David Deutsch, I think it was, said the same very explicitly, the, the laws don't control anything. The laws do nothing but describe. And I've made the point there. I made it once in a, in a 
little adult education group and got a hug, a reaction that, that uh, you know, if, if a, a, an event doesn't obey the law, we don't change the event. <laughs> we, we say, oh, must be something wrong with the law. And we revise the law. It is the laws, the events, or our observations of the events that determine the laws, not the other way around. And this idea that the laws make things happen, they do this, the snowflakes happen because of the laws of physics. Nonsense. The laws may describe how they do it, but, but they, don't cause, they, they don't cause. Well, a thought that occurred to me when you were writing about that in the book is that certainly it would be hubristic of us to think that the laws that we come up with yeah. are what is yeah. controlling the universe. Yeah. But perhaps there are, um, I don't know, meta laws or real laws or divine truth and providence or something that are that is controlling what's happening and then our observation of it we can put our best wording and mathematics to it and yeah. and call it our laws. Yeah. So I sort of felt like there's almost like two sets of laws, like our version of it, but then the divine, and I don't know in Hawking what he would call that, the fiery version or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but uh, Kagan, in talking about our need for individuation, our, our need for autonomy, and our need for companionship, our need to belong, is talking about this same duality. And he describes it as the fundamental energy of life itself. The and fundamental energy of life itself. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I forget the precise thing, but it's in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, I don't think it is a coincidence, I think it's significant, that uh, Swedenborg has a definition of life itself. He thinks the Lord is life itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. And would also insist, and this is a part of the what we don't know chapter that I attach a lot of importance to, uh, we cannot understand the infinite. We have finite minds. We cannot get beyond that finiteness. We have to have things dumbed down to our comprehension. And what, when that happens, uh, I think, I think, as that happens, it necessarily issues in, in, uh, in statements that are paradoxical. Einstein said, if you can't accept paradox, you can't be a physicist. <laughs> I believe Niels Bohr said, the opposite of a great truth is another great truth. Uh, and this is the determinism free will. And it is rampant in Swedenborg, in the writings, with 141 times, as I, my computer tells me, little phrase, as if of oneself. We are supposed to resist evils as if of ourselves, and yet recognize that no, 
It isn't ourselves, it's the Lord. And this is a paradox. And he said, we don't outgrow this, that in the, in the highest heaven, this is where we realize it most fully. And we know that we are the Lord's and we, have a, we really have a very strong sense of individuality, of, 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 of who we are. And in a sense, I hear this telling me, if I reach that point, I will know who I am, I will, because I simply will be accepting who I am and not trying to define myself and then defend that definition. Just say, okay. Here, here it is, whatever it is, that's it. And I can look at it and try to figure out what it is. And it, as I think uh, very simply and vividly described in his uh, sense, we wouldn't be in all this trouble if we stopped trying to claim credit for anything good that we do. He said, if we really accepted that everything we are is flowing in, we wouldn't make ourselves guilty of the bad stuff, and we wouldn't spoil the good stuff by taking credit for it. We'd just be grateful for the good stuff and throw the bad stuff away. And without any sense of, of uh, profit and loss, you might say. And the, uh, this, next, this next book ends with a Helen Keller quote, which I love a little bit more every time I tell anybody, so I'm going to tell it again. Uh, her, you know, she went through some very dark times, and she said, Then comes hope with a smile and tells, says, There is joy in self-forgetfulness. And we're all capable of self-forgetfulness. We get absorbed in what we're doing and the self-forgetfulness. And if we're doing something we love to do and it's useful, it's wonderful. We don't, and we wreck it and we say, hey, look how happy I am, right? Hey, look how good I am. No, if we can just forget ourselves and get absorbed in this doing, we're, we're really at a, at a very lively, active peace. And it can have a community that is vibrantly active and totally peaceful. As Spinbur will say on it, nothing idle, idle about peace. No, peace is very active. Giving, giving and receiving constantly. Thank you. Whoa. <laughs> All right. Now we're moving on in the next question to the sort of emergence or generation of consciousness, which is, yeah. so that's right where the science and spirituality are rubbing. <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah. And I do think it is, this is a place where it is absolutely essential to recognize that we are utterly incapable of taking an ob examining consciousness objectively. That would mean we'd have to e examine it 
with something other than our own consciousness. And we're immersed in it. We can try to identify it, try to see what it does and how it works, but we cannot analyze it scientifically. We cannot get outside it and put a definition around it and see it from the outside. The outside is nothing but unconsciousness. Yeah. And, uh, that was Santayana, I'm pretty sure. He said, you can, uh, we may never know who discovered water, but it sure wasn't a fish. Mm -hmm. yes. he, he didn't say it quite as, as vividly, uh, as colloquially as that, but that's, that's, that's the idea. And, and consciousness is one of those things. Life is another of those things. And those are both absolutely essential to our being and our functioning and our happiness. And we can't, they are beyond the reach of science to analyze because we're immersed in them. So, I would take refuge perhaps uh, in a way on the scientific side with Tatwin Teodishada who says nothing can emerge that wasn't there to, to come out. <laughs> Had to be there in some form and it does need to be recognized that emergence is a metaphor and it, it does mean something that exists coming out of a matrix and into uh, functioning and into consciousness or into visible functioning. And uh, I suspect that by rigid rationalism, one would have to say that consciousness and life emerge simultaneously. You can't have either without the other. So as soon as you get a, what you would classify as a living microbe, you have a microbial consciousness, so to speak. You have something that is functioning proactively, not just passively, not, not like a billiard ball particularly. But then you get pushed back all the way to Heisenberg and saying particles do not form until they are observed. And observation requires consciousness. And the formation of particles is the first step in the materialization of the universe. So I think he is saying, in effect, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm quite sure that this is something that uh, Professor Greenstein does say, we have to posit consciousness at, at, from the very big beginning of the Big Bang. Not consciousness as we know it. But we don't know it <laughs> anyway. But consciousness, yeah. and if that's the case, then uh, we are really positing life 
from the word go. So the question, or further on question from that is um, about Roger Penrose's theory of the generation of consciousness, which you don't cover in the book. Um, but the question was, do you think that that might be a, a good model for how we receive influx? Do you need a reminder of what that is? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I, at this point, turn I didn't to PJ. just play outright blankly instruction. <laughs> PJ is our expert on Roger Penrose's theory of consciousness. Would you like to come up here and explain it? Be only because this is the only yeah. microphone we have. Roger Penrose says that consciousness is generated in the brain in these structures called microtubules, which form exoskeletons around every neuron. Uh, in these microtubules contain a molecule called tubulin. The microtubules are segmented. Each segment contains molecule of tubulin, which is a dimer, has a positive and a negative end, and they can flip. And Penrose says that this generates consciousness, this constitutes a quantum computer in the brain that generates consciousness. My question is, can't you flip that and say that this is what receives consciousness and integrates it through the neurons into our our being. Mm -hmm. So we receive consciousness through microtubules, integrating it into our selves. Yeah, the, I, I would have to, I'd have to spend some time with it. I was I was particularly impressed with Sir John Eccles saying that he felt that when you get down to the subatomic, the real subatomic level of, of neural activity, you are d getting into the realm of probabilities. And probabilities are mental. They are not physical. Yes. And that the mind then can be the cause of the brain rather than the result of the brain. See, uh, you know, uh, how, what is the relationship between the neuron and the phenomenon of consciousness? And again, You've got to define consciousness in order to answer that. And I would say, let's take something we are conscious of, like an idea. Now, is the, the uh, uh, Pendulum yeah, uh, is saying we, we don't know how the neural activity causes ideas. And there have been experiments, and there are some of them in there, that say it's the other way around. Thinking causes neural activity. Mm -hmm. 
and there is a causal relationship between these two levels of reality, then the neuron is not on the same level as, as an idea. Yes. You cannot physically measure an idea. It doesn't have mass, it doesn't have energy. It, it is in a different realm. What, but he, the physicist is saying there is a causal connection between the two. And as far as I'm concerned, that leaves open the question of the direction of the causation. Exactly. And, and that's where it comes down. And to, to whatever the mechanism is of the neural mechanism, the, the activating, I think Swedenborg would insist absolutely, is from the spiritual into the, into the physical, not the other way around. Exactly. Yeah. My suspicion is that the, we receive the spiritual through these quantum computers. It's, we receive the spiritual on a quantum level or even below a quantum level and it integrates into the neurons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's uh, something but worth how, looking into. But however you fi finally you tune it, it comes down to an intersection between the material and the immaterial. Yes. And that's where the mystery, that's where the mystery lies. You get more and more precise about the physical, yes. but it still is not it, the idea. It's, it is it's always the receding. Yes. Yeah. Always receding yeah. deeper and deeper. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Let's, mm -hmm. let's take a mic break and turn on the other mic so that the audience can hear it's all right. Are you doing okay? <laughs> yeah. Do you need water? Well, you've got water. Honey. Uh, There's water if you oh, need it. Oh, okay. If you need it. And a mic, if you need it. Yeah. Are we wearing you out, or does your brain hurt yet, or anything? <laughs> Still stimulable. I'll stimulate. Okay. Well, once we get microphoned. Yeah, we had eight questions, and somehow or other, I've only got seven written here. So, if somebody in the group feels that their question. Isn't, hasn't been asked by the time we get through, mm. we'll pipe up. Okay, we back on? Okay. Uh, so we're back to a question about our evolution as human beings. Um, as you point out in the book, Darwin's theory was co-opted to mean uh, survival of the strongest. Darwin wrote about survival of the fittest but it's sort of come to mean survival of the strongest, not the fittest. So what is there in the concept of the fittest uh, that can be positive in moving us forward in our evolution as human beings? Uh, I'd say be, be very stupidly simple and say the fittest is what fits best. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And we use, you know, this, this, we use it in that sense. This fits here. Yeah. Don't you need to hold it closer yeah, to yeah. Right, almost right near your mouth. Yeah. Right into the end. Yeah, and uh, a fitting response is one that's appropriate, that's apt. 
and so on. And uh, going on in the front of the dining room, there is a, an intensive exercise trying to find where the various pieces of the picture puzzle fit. <laughs> and this piece fits here and not there, and so on. So the survival of the fittest should be, should be taken in a very, very literal sense and not translated into the victor, the strongest. Because I've said that in here, as far as survival of the individual is concerned, uh, strength is, is an asset, speed is an asset, intelligence is an asset, flexibility, respond, quick reflexes, all kinds of things are assets. As far as survival of the species is concerned, uh, and, uh, Darwin is very, very clear about this. Adaptation is the secret. And the environment is changing. Any species that does not adapt dies. And as a matter of fact, of course, uh, as far as individuals are concerned, they all die. There aren't any mastodons left. There aren't any saber-toothed tigers left. There aren't any dinosaurs left. But we've got guppies and bunny rabbits and butterflies, and angleworms, and all kinds of little things that, that, that uh, don't look particularly mighty or muscular but have found niches in the ecology where they, their needs are met and they, are, they, they meet the needs of others. And they fit. I just discovered, incidentally, do you know the natural habitat, the original habitat of hummingbirds? The high Andes, yeah. And they are equipped to function marvelously at very low temperature and very rare in very rare atmosphere. And they come down to this oxygen-loaded thing, and they're ready for <laughs> they're ready to conquer the world. Mm. <laughs> no, the, but but again, the, in in that. that atmosphere that is deadly for a lot of animals. They, they fit. They thrive. So, it, specifically for humans, yeah, yeah. how would we, how would we, could we, if you have any thoughts on this, apply that theory of the fittest and the most adapted to how we might move forward beyond just being homo sapiens to being sentience as well? Yeah. I think I would have to say I'd, I'd, I'd really want to sit down with a group and talk a while about something like that. That it boils down in a way to simply trying to find the most healthy and constructive way to deal with the situation in which we presently find ourselves. 
and, and especially uh, to take a, be able to stand back from that and take a long view, projective, you know, a century ahead and not, not just a lifetime ahead and so on. And look, I think, very much into the, but I think Darwin would be right behind me. I think the key word is sustainability. We have to, have to look for the most sustainable way. And, and we're faced, I believe, with having going to be faced with having to make some very difficult choices. We, I think we've been very spendthrift. And we can't. We won't be able to. Simply won't be able to afford it. And it's going to be a question of what do we give up, and what do we value most? What do we need most? And I think the only long-term viable solutions will have to be solutions that prioritize the spiritual. That, that is where we find our cohesiveness, our, our social cohesiveness, and our individual satisfaction. That is where we learn how to live together. Uh, yeah. The, uh, another person I think was more inter influenced by Swedenborg than he would admit is C.S. Lewis. And what I would point to is his science fiction, because the other planets that he visits, none of them is highly technological. None of them is you know, way, light years ahead of us in developing all this high scale. They are all able to live together more harmoniously. They are wiser, they are more profound, they are more peaceful. They are less materialistic. And for all the faults of uh, Swedenborg's uh, other planets, Earth and the universe, I think he got all the planets' names wrong. But I think he was right on in focusing on the nature of community of these inhabitants. And none of them you know, is, is pictured as having anything beyond a simple agricultural economy. That's all we need to live a good, healthy life. And uh, Derek Box, The Politics of Happiness, we've made tremendous technological strides in the past 50 years. The survey says we're not really much happier than we were 50 years ago. It does require a, what uh, Edgar Mitchell is looking for, a transformation of consciousness, which is really, I think, not much more than just plain facing facts. Facing the fact, the, the fact that the most important thing that, that gives us the most, makes life worthwhile, what the, our, our human relationships. 
not our technological toys or things like that, or powers and so on, but how we live together day after day after day, shoulder to shoulder, sometimes cheek to cheek. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And to take, to take that home and um, say, uh, how much should we spend on this upgrade, so to speak? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I hear that in two ways. The sort of the negative technology way, like, okay, we're going to upgrade our computers. How much are we going to spend on that? But then in the sort of planetary way, yeah. you know, what are we willing to give up? How are we going to upgrade our sustainability? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly one thing that technology does is raise the stakes. You know, we can destroy ourselves much more efficiently than we ever could before. <laughs> but also, we can link globally much more readily than we have ever been able to do. Yes, it's not all negative. Yeah, not all negative at all, no. But how we use it can make it a blessing or a curse. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is the final question I wrote down, but I think there was others floating out there. But in the book, you mentioned the hard problem of consciousness. I forget which scientist said the hard problem that we face is that of consciousness. And do you think that, that possibly that the solution to that problem, anyway, will be moved into the realm of scientific inquiry through the soft sciences like psychology and sociology? whether it's a different kind of standard of, of scientific inquiry. Yeah. As, as long as science ha is obliged to quantify, mm. I don't think it can make much progress on the understanding of consciousness. Mm. I, don't, I doubt that there is any way to mathematize, mathematize it. You may be able to symbolize some of its functions, but the, the thing itself, I think, will remain uh, necessarily, absolutely necessarily, primarily uh, subjective. Uh, yeah. yeah, which would put it in the realm of uh, the soft sciences. Yeah, ab yeah. Ab absolutely, which can be very disciplined. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of like transpersonal psychology, for instance. Yeah. Do you think there's any hope going in that direction? Uh, I, I was fascinated by it for a while and uh, got distracted by other things. I really have not kept up with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a transpersonal conversation. Uh, cons conversation with Jim Fadiman at a uh, transpersonal psychology conference that prompted me to do the uh, view from within the uh, thoughtful soul. He was saying, well, couldn't we have some kind of introduction to Swedenborg that is aimed more at where we are? Yeah. And that's, that's what prompted that. Yeah. But again, I, 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 I had some very informative and helpful sessions, but uh, 
once I couldn't get my way paid anymore. <laughs> I <laughs> that was the end of that. Yeah. Well, that's the end of the structured questions that yeah. I had. Any questions from anybody else here? And we can pass the microphone around. Oh, we have an alternative microphone to pass around. While we wait, I can repeat your questions so that it's all recorded and everything. But has this conversation stimulated any further questions, commentary? What would you say was the ultimate point of your book? The question is, what would you say is the ultimate point of your book? Uh, microphone. Yeah, microphone. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much to be heard and responded to in the conversa in the context of the ongoing conversation by the people who are participating in it or are affected by it. What about in terms of its ultimate point within the book? The ultimate point within the book. Yeah. Uh, it's intended <coughs> to, uh, as a kind of answer to uh, Einstein's mo quote, most important question, is the universe a friendly place mm. or not? And it is intended to say it is an arguable uh, model to arguably possible and productive to model the universe as a friend, very friendly place if you accept the concept of tough love, so to speak. The, the friend, friendly being profoundly constructive but uh, constantly provocative, stimulant stimulated, uh, promoting, <laughs> you might say, promoting instability for the sake of, of constant change and growth. I believe Hugh has a question. Yeah, I noticed in the book that you want seem to accept the position that there was a beginning, that is the Big Bang. Now, uh, I was thinking of God from the nature of being love itself. Love always wanting to love something outside of itself. Therefore came, I thought, there was never a time when God wasn't creating, therefore no beginning. <laughs> I was 
think I would uh, pull my parka up over my ears and, and hide behind the plea of having a finite mind and saying you're, you're really talking about the relationship between the infinite and the finite and we simply have to say uh, beyond this at this point we simply cannot see this is the the and I would insist that I have I think said reasonably clearly that the big bang seems to be the best model we've had so far doesn't mean it's the best that we'll ever have uh, uh, and uh, if it lasts as long as, as the Newtonian model, that's, that's a couple of centuries <laughs> ahead yet, and, and things may be changing faster than that. There may be a better model, but um, I, at present, am operating within the confines of that model. And, uh, With, with the feeling that within the confines of that model, the model I'm proposing is a useful and constructive one, one that if taken and thoroughly digested does lead in the direction of genuinely heavenly community. and does so by, so to speak, starting right, pretty much starting where we are at the moment. It isn't just daydreaming off in the far future. Wouldn't it be lovely if we all loved each other? It is, does try to be grounded in the present, the state of thought at the present. <laughs> I had another question if there's nobody else to. Okay. It's sort of related to um, the Big Bang and whether that was the beginning of the universe because I, I didn't really find a definition of the universe in the book. So I'm wondering if, you know, if the book is about the universe and I am pretty sure who I am, maybe, as if of self, maybe, but <laughs> um, the universe. And because, um, actually, to my surprise, I found out that my concept of the universe is bigger than most, what it seems most people. I guess I always thought the universe was everything that the divine created, uh, spiritual and material, that the the three layers of ether, and then the celestial kingdom, spiritual, natural, then yeah. Big Bang, us, all of that was the universe. But it seems maybe I've been wrong, and the universe is a little smaller than that. <laughs> anyway, if you would comment on that. No, no. Uh, I've been, been re reading a book now that is, is primarily focused on the discovery of gravitational waves. And this gets into the size of the, of the uh, physical universe, with which I was not really familiar, because they are talking about are presently perce being able to perceive 
gravitational waves that happened some 500 million light years away. It's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a long way. Yeah. And the, the, you know, the, the, the scale that is being talked about is, is immense. Uh, I think it would have been over, overload in, in a book with this particular aim to get into the structure of the spiritual world at all. I was startled and pleased Brainstein's thoughts uh, structural parallels, parallels uh, uh, similarities that Swedenborg points to between Swedenborg's discussion of emergence uh, of, of, of fascinating resonances between the spiritual and material worlds. And I didn't really think I'd done very much on this uh, on spiritual principles and how spiritual reality in general work, but the idea of spiritual worlds takes you a whole quantum jump ahead of that. And I think Nate would, would double the size of the book in, in a way, it would raise all kinds of things. I wanted to stay fairly strictly within the universe as the scientists are currently portraying it. And introduce the spiritual <coughs> primarily uh, by the subject of we. Yeah, we and Hawkins from my eye, we and the universe. Account for the way the universe exists materially, but you can't account for the we if you don't turn to the spiritual. And another question that came up in the group about the universe is the concept of parallel or multiple universes. I, I don't remember if you actually mentioned that, but no. I, and I don't really know the theory other than the kind of joking around version of like, in a parallel universe, I would be blah, blah, blah. But, um, no. but in a sort of a scientific, do you know the basis of that theory? Uh, I don't, I don't. My, my feeling is, that uh, it was a cop-out, <laughs> basically. That uh, we can't really explain why things are the way they are, so let's suppose that there are also 160 other ways that they aren't, so to speak. I, I, I don't know. And, but the idea and, and then the idea then that there are some fundamentally different laws, principles, and universes that run on fundamentally different principles. And, uh, without being able to suggest what those principles might be, 
and, and these principles uh, are the ones that happened we have, because these are the ones that happened to work this time around, so, so to speak. And it this evades any thought that there might actually have been a single creative purpose to the whole thing. And to say, no, it, maybe this is just a random, random set of laws. The laws themselves aren't random, but the, but they are just one set that turned out to work, and there are a whole bunch of others that we have no of which we have no knowledge. It just strikes me as. Uh, It, evasive, I would say, yeah. But I don't, I don't know. I haven't followed the argu argument that closely. I pretty much dropped it out of the mathematical world when we got to trigonometry. <laughs> and yet you wrote this book. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, in the book you very um, in there the book a, there isn't a cosine in it. Right. In the in the book you repeatedly. Um, mention your limitations in mathematics. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's heartening that somebody else that has limitations in mathematics, like myself, could read these authors and yeah. and and come to some kind of understanding. Yeah. yeah. Incidentally, there's one of my favorite books was David Bohm's uh, Wholeness and the Implicate Order, and he has some wonderful, wonderful stuff in that. I think, and then he has this one chapter. In which he says, but I can say a lot of this is more, more efficiently and precisely in mathematics. Uh, totally unintelligible <laughs> as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. 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 So, but I take it for granted that some people look at these symbols on the board and they really are saying something very coherent. Mm -hmm. A different language. <laughs> So do we have any other comments, questions? Well, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Yeah. For your attention. Thank you. Thank you.